Our Father in heaven, we come before you once again in our time together, and we ask that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, that you would help us to be focused now upon your word and what you are saying to us through it, for these are your words written long ago, yes, by your servant David, but ultimately spoken through your mouth, the mouth of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I also ask that you would be with me as I preach your word now. Help me to do so with clarity. And I pray that the result would be that your people, the people of God, would be built up by it. They would continually be sanctified through the preaching of your word. Being continually formed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, be with us. And we thank you for your word, for it is precious. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I believe most of us, if not all of us, are pretty familiar with Psalm 139. You may not have ever read the whole psalm before, but it's very likely that you've heard parts of it quoted. It's a very famous psalm, especially for two reasons. The first reason is mainly because of verses 13 to 16. If you were to glance down there, you would see that in verses 13 to 16, that's where David, he says the famous words, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We hear that quoted very often, especially in our day because of the battle of abortion, which I'll mention a little bit more later on in the sermon. And then the second reason why this psalm is especially well known is because it puts on display in a plain way, anyways, the, or some of the, or three attributes, one of the more well known attributes of God. His omniscience, which just means all knowing. He has perfect knowledge. His omnipresence, which just means that He is everywhere present. And then the third one that's put on display is His omnipotence, which just means all-powerful. Our God is an all-powerful God. So this psalm puts all three of those attributes on display within the 24 verses that we're going to be looking at. However, when David wrote this psalm long ago, he was not fighting the fight of abortion and he was not primarily just putting God's omniscience, omnipresence, and His omnipotence on display. Yes, he is putting that on display here. But the primary reason why he wrote this psalm, the point of the psalm, is that God, through these things, through these attributes, knows David and He knows His people intimately. In the most intimate way. That's the point of Psalm 139. God knows David and He knows His people intimately. And I get that from the word know that David uses. So if you were just to glance down at Psalm 139, you would notice that David uses this word know six times throughout the psalm. And not only does he use it six times throughout the psalm, but he begins the psalm with the word know, and then he closes the psalm with the word know. So it's the book ends of Psalm 139. And that word know, yes, it's used in a way that, like I know something about you, like knowledge. But this word is also used in an intimate way, like between, like the knowing between a husband and a wife. For example, if you were to look in Genesis chapter 4, when the Bible speaks about Adam, whenever he knew his wife, speaking about Sexual intimacy. The Bible uses that word to describe it. The word is used sometimes to express or to describe this type of intimacy. Now, 
I'm not saying that God knows David and He knows His people in exactly that way, you know, this sexual way. I'm not saying that. You don't... To be intimate with your spouse, it doesn't just... You don't just need sex there, right? Intimacy is way more than just that. And that's what we're talking about in this psalm. That's how God knows David and that's how God knows you in that intimate way. So with that in mind, I'm going to break the psalm down in six parts and this is how it's going to go. In verses 1 to 6, we're going to see that God knows His people. God knows His people. Verses 7 to 12, God is with His people. Verses 13 to 16, God created His people. And all three of those have something to do with the intimacy that God has for His people and His knowledge of them. And then in verses 17 to 18, the psalm kind of changes a little bit. So in those first three parts that I just named off, it's primarily about God and how He knows David and how He knows His people. But then when you get to verse 17, it changes and it's more focused on David's response to those things. And so the last three parts will go like this. The people of God praise Him. Verses 17 to 18. And then verses 19 to 22, the people of God desire justice. And then in verses 23 to 24, the people of God continually desire to be known by Him. Those are the three responses that we're going to see. So now look with me as we read the psalm together, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And as it is with the psalms, I'll just make this comment before we read. Remember to pay attention to the poetic language. This, this is meant to make your heart sing the way that it's written. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there Your hand shall lead me and Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for, dar for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. 
I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Verses 1-6, to God knows His people. So David begins the psalm, as I mentioned a moment ago, by saying that the Lord, using the personal name of God there, just so you, you realize that, it just adds to the intimate relationship that we're going to see unfold as we walk through the psalm. So using the personal name of God, he says that God has searched him and known him. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. God knows David and He knows His people completely. There is nothing about you that He does not already know. He has perfect knowledge. And let me go ahead and mention, I meant to mention this earlier, I forgot though. God has this knowledge and His presence and His power about all people. All people. Christians, the people of God, or unbelievers, non-Christians. He knows everything about everyone who has ever existed or who will exist. But, the intimacy is not there for the unbeliever. So yes, He knows everything about them, but this intimacy that we're going to see, it's not there between God and the unbeliever. So we need to remember that as we walk through this psalm. The promises that are here and the intimacy that is here is for the people of God. It's for Christians, which has been bought for us by the blood of Christ. So if you are not a Christian... This can be yours through Christ. But currently, if you're not, then the promises are not yours. Now, back to, back to what we're looking at here in verses 1-6. to six. So God knows His people completely. He has searched them and He has known them. And now, beginning in verse 2, David begins to describe what he's talking about there whenever he says that the Lord has searched me, that He has known me, or that He has searched His people, that He has known His people. He expands upon that. He says that the Lord knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He discerns your thoughts from afar. He knows all your thoughts. He searches out your paths, what you do in the day and you're lying down, what you do during the night. He is acquainted with all your ways. Even before a word is on your tongue, He knows it all together. So, right now I'm I'm speaking, and most of this I have in my notes. Some of it I don't have in my notes. But also, when when you have a conversation, when you speak, you know, before the word is for, before it makes it, or it's before it's even formed in your mind, makes its way down to your tongue and comes out. The Lord has already known it. He already knows what you're going to say. Even before a word is on your tongue, behold, He knows it all together. He hems you in, behind, and before. He lays. His hand upon you. Now this is a figure of, of comfort. A, a picture of comfort. It's not as if the Lord is heavy-handed upon you, like He's putting pressure upon you. No, He's hemming you in, Christian, to comfort you, to surround you with His perfect knowledge and His love for you. And we see that in David's response in verse 6. 
David's response to the perfect knowledge of God. It's not fear. It's praise and adoration. He says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. So high that I cannot attain it. And thinking about what David has just described about the perfect knowledge of God, he just stands in awe of it. He stands in adoration of who God is. His perfect knowledge, how He has searched Him completely, known Him completely, and also for you as well. You know, this, this is the response for the people of God anyways to the perfect knowledge of God, which is kind of strange if you really just sit here and think about this. I mean, think about what David has just said. He knows every thought that you have ever had go through your mind or ever will go through your mind. He knows every word that you have spoken every word that you will speak. He knows everything that there is to know about you. He knows it exhaustively. And you think about that and you're like, okay, that's kind of freaky. <laughs> Maybe. There's this being that, you know, he knows all my thoughts. He knows everything that I say. Why in the world would I I'd be happy about that. Timothy Keller, I believe in his book, The, the Meaning of Marriage, his, his great book that he wrote on marriage. He talks about, in that book, how we all desire to be fully loved. We, we all have that desire within us, to be fully loved. And then he describes being fully loved in the way that you have been fully known. So to be fully loved is to be fully known. And that's what David is rejoicing in here in these verses. He is rejoicing that God fully knows Him through His omniscience, through His perfect knowledge, the greatness of God. But not only that, He's rejoicing because God, through His omniscience, fully knowing Him, fully loves Him. And how does that happen? I mean, how do you have this relationship? Because you have wicked thoughts that go through your mind, just like I do. I mean, oh, if you were to just count the horrible things that you would not dare speak about or want anybody to know about that go through your mind, and yet God knows all of them. And He fully knows you and He fully loves you through it. Because of Christ. Because He paid for all of those horrible thoughts. He paid for all those horrible words that you have spoken about people, about yourself, about God, maybe. We were talking about the horrificness of the cross last week. You know, how dark and how torturous that device was. Well, that's one of the reasons why it was so dark and so torturous, because sin itself is so horrible. Because of our wicked thoughts and our wicked sayings. But God fully knows us and He fully loves us through Christ and what He has done for us. So this desire that we have that Timothy Keller describes in his book, it's found nowhere else but in God and in Him alone. That is the only place that you can be fully known and fully loved. And that's the rejoicing that David is doing here as he says that your knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's why he rejoices. And I, as I was reading through this verse in my study, David's praise here made me think of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, where the Lord there says this to the prophet Isaiah. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as 
high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are the, the ways of God and the thoughts of God above our ways and our thoughts. Verses 7 to 12. God has perfect knowledge. He knows us perfectly. But God doesn't just only know us from a distance, like David says, where he says, you know my thoughts from afar. He not only knows us perfectly from a distance, but He knows us personally as well. Up close and personal, you could say. That's what David is showing in verses 7 to 12, that God is with His people. He doesn't just know you from heaven and He's not involved. No, He knows you and He's with you. So much so that David describes the Lord's presence as inescapable. Which again, why would you rejoice in something like that? It's like Big Brother following you around all the time. You know, He's, he's just always there. The all, the ever-watching eye. Why would you rejoice in always being watched? Again, you think about your thoughts, the the horrible thoughts that you have, okay? What have you done in secret, in the dark, that you would not dare tell your closest friend? God knows. He was there watching you. Do whatever it is that you would not dare tell anybody else. He was there. So why would we rejoice in something like this? Well, again... Intimacy is flowing through God's omnipresence. God, through His omnipresence, intimately knows His people. He's not just there to watch you, to keep tabs on you. No, He's there to comfort you, to give you reassurance, to give you strength, to sustain you. There's no reason to fear if you are in Christ, like I was talking about a moment ago. So David says, he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee excuse me, from your presence? The answer is nowhere. There's nowhere that you can go. There's nowhere that you can flee to go from the Spirit of God or to flee from His presence. You remember Jonah tried. The prophet Jonah, at the very beginning of the book, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he told him to go to Nineveh. Verse 3, Jonah went to a ship, got on the ship, and he fled to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah soon found out that he could not escape the presence of the Lord because even there where he fled, God was still with him. There's nowhere that you can flee the presence of God. And similar to what David did in verses one, excuse me, verses two to six, he describes in poetic language what, what this looks like, what this inescapable presence of God looks like. And he says, "If you ascend to heaven, the Lord is there. If you make your bed in Sheol, which is just a Hebrew word for the grave describes the grave. The Lord is there. He's there, as w He's there as well. If you take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there the Lord is with you and His hand will lead you. And His right hand, His hand of favor will hold you. Now you see what He just did with that language that He used. If you ascend to heaven, the furthest north that you can go, if you descend to Sheol, the grave, the furthest south that you can go, if He takes the wings of the morning, which is to the east, the furthest east that you can go, or if He dwells in the uttermost parts of the sea, now where David was located at, the sea was to the west. So he just named the compass off. 
everywhere and in between. God is there and you cannot escape His presence. He's in the north, He's in the south, He's in the east, He's in the west, and He's everywhere in between. He is all present. And as He says, His hand will be there to lead you and His hand will be there to guide you, to hold you. I thought about, as I was studying these verses, thinking about the presence of God and how He promises to be with His people. I thought about the, the book of Daniel and the, the three characters that are well known there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they had fled, or excuse me, they hadn't fled, but they had been taken captive from their land, from Judah. They had been taken captive by the Babylonians to the land of Babylon, to where the king of Nebuchadnezzar was, and they were then forced to be his servants. Well, somewhere along the their time of being there, Nebuchadnezzar, he builds a statue of himself and he commands that all people bow down to it and worship the statue that he made. Well, if you're familiar with the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with great respect to the king, they tell him, no, my king, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bow down to the statue. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated by this. And he has this furnace that they use to execute people with. And he heats the furnace as hot as they possibly can, so hot that whenever they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace, the people who throw them in there die in the process. So they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this furnace... And Nebuchadnezzar, who's watching the whole event, he sees inside the furnace and he says to his servants there, am I mistaken or do I see four people in the furnace? You know, I know Shadrach, I know Meshach, and I know Abednego are there, but who's the fourth person that's in the furnace with them? It was the angel of the Lord. And if you're familiar with that language, the angel of the Lord refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there with them. And that same promise that we see here and that we see manifested in that story, the Lord Jesus Christ gave to His disciples when He sent them out into the world, when He said, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And behold... I am with you until the end of the age. The fourth man is always with his people as he is with David here in this moment. Now verses 11 and 12. These are my favorite verses in the whole psalm. I love these verses. Even if the darkness covers you, David says, in the light about you be night. The darkness is not dark to the Lord. No, the night is as bright as the day to Him, for darkness is as light with Him. Now, if you know anything about suffering, you know that it does not have to be dark outside to feel as if you are being consumed with darkness. It can be the prettiest day outside, sunny like it is today, and you can be sitting there right now in a place of darkness. You can, be, you can feel like you are just being consumed with darkness. It doesn't have to be literal darkness. It can be the darkness of Fear, the darkness of doubt, the darkness of discouragement, of depression, or of pain, whatever kind it may be. But even in this type of darkness, which is what I think David is mainly referring to here, 
Even in this type of darkness, the Lord is there and He sees you. He sees you. Even if you don't, even if you feel like you don't know yourself in that moment, if you don't know your right hand from your left, you, you can't see how you're going to go forward, how you're going to get out of this mess, this darkness, this depression, this fear, this doubt, this discouragement, or whatever it is, the Lord sees through it just like the sunniest of days. Clear as day, the Lord sees you and He knows you and He is with you. So God knows His people. God is with His people. And in verses 13 to 16, we see that God is the Creator of His people. And David says there, beginning in verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So one of the reason why, reasons why God knows David and one of the reasons why He knows His people so well, so intimately, is that He not only perfectly knows them and is always with them, but He created them. He created you. He is your Maker. He is your Designer. And I want you to notice the, the language that David uses as he describes this. I mean, this is beautiful language forming inward parts, knitting together in the womb, being fearfully and wonderfully made, and then saying, wonderful are His works. My soul knows it very well. This is how David describes God's work in the womb. God is like an artist doing His thing in the womb. Knitting you together in the, the finest of detail. This is beautiful language. And it's so sad, unfortunately, that many don't see this. You know, for many of us today, we describe this process as just tissue being formed, or we, we call it a fetus. You know, we, we, take, we take all of this beautiful language away. We even take the, the language away of of calling what's happening here a human being being formed. We take away all of this beautiful language, God's design in the womb, and we just treat it like it's another scientific experiment or scientific process that's, that's going on. We remove this language that David uses here. And I'm talking about abortion. I'm talking about those who advocate for for divorce uh, excuse me for abortion those who who advocate for it that's the language that they use because it's very easy to to go through with that process when you're just talking about tissue when you're just talking about a thing and not a person you know it's very easy to to murder uh, a human being when you remove the language that David uses here. It's very easy. But at the heart of abortion is not so much so the removing of beautiful language, the removing of the identity of a person. No, at the heart of abortion, at the heart of killing the unborn, is the attempt to be God, to be the, the designer, to be the sovereign, to be omnipotent. That is our attempt to control our circumstances and our own lives. This is my body and I'll do with it what I want. Another language that is used. That sounds very similar to what happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? When the serpent told Adam and Eve, you can be like God. We still try to be like God. And we try to be like God in moments like these as well. 
But at the same time, as I try to, to show abortion for what it is, it is horrific, it is sinful, it is murder. I also want to be gracious because there is forgiveness even in horrific sin like this. You know, some of you, you know, some of your darkest secrets, some of your thoughts, some of your actions that you would that you don't want anybody to know, maybe something like this. <laughs> maybe you had an abortion at some point, or maybe you tried to push your, your wife, your, your girlfriend, or whatever at some point in time in your life to have an abortion. If that is you, if you're guilty of that, then there is forgiveness through Christ even in sin like these. God is able to save even in the midst of horrific and dark sin. Now continuing in verses 15 and 16. Not only has God created you, not only has He designed you in your mother's womb, not only is He your maker, but He knew you before you were ever born before you were ever created in your mother's womb, before anybody had any idea that you would exist, God knew you. And that's what David's talking about here in verses 15 and 16. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. This is just more poetic language describing the, the, the process of a child being formed in the womb. Then he says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before you were ever born, before you were ever a thought in somebody's mind, God already had written down in His book every single one of your days. Just sit there and... Try to comprehend knowledge like this. Knowing somebody like this, as God knows you, as He knows His people. Before you were ever born, before you ever existed, God knew every single day from the time you would be born, from the time that you would die, and everything in between. He knows it all. God knows His people in the most intimate ways possible. And now we come to verses 17 to 18 where we begin to see the response of this omniscience, of this omnipresence, of this omnipotence. And David says in verse 17, again, he doesn't cower in fear. He doesn't respond with paranoia. He says, how precious! That's the word he uses. How Precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. These things are precious to David and they should be precious to us, people of God. Because again, this is how God knows you. This is how He intimately knows you. This is the type of relationship that He has invited you into with Himself, through Christ. These are precious thoughts. And you could not begin to ever count them or to understand them, to wrap your mind around them. David says, if I were to try to count them, to number them, I would fall asleep. I think that's what he's saying there. I awake and I am still with you. In my weakness, if I try to wrap my mind around who you are and how you know me, and all of the detail, I would fall asleep. But even in my weakness, you are still with me. We praise God for His knowledge of us. We praise Him for His great works. This is the correct response. The people of God trying to anyways, in part comprehending the works of God and then responding with praise, mag 
magnification, glorification of God and who He is. But not only do we praise God in light of who He is, but we also desire justice. And that's what we see in verses 19 to 22 where David says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now these verses are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. You know, it's hard for us to to swallow the language that David uses here for not only his enemies, but the enemies of God. I mean, he uses the word slay. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. I don't want to try to frost this over. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. And then he says, oh, men of blood, depart from me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to be counted in your midst. I'm not like them. Because they speak against you, O God, with malicious intent. They take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And then in verse 22, I hate them with complete hatred and I count them my enemies. This is very... Very, very strong language. And one of the reasons why we, we have such a hard time grappling with, understanding with, swallowing these verses, is we really don't know how to reconcile them with like the command that Jesus gives to us. To love your enemy. To love those who hate you. I mean, how do we reconcile that command of Christ to love our enemies. And what David is saying here where he says, I hate them with complete hatred. Complete hatred. Well, I found a a helpful quote from John Piper that I'm going to read. I think this is very helpful and just trying to wrap our minds around with what is going on in these verses. This article, by the way, it came from desiringgod.org. The title of the article is, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? The verses we skipped. You can find it on his site. I commend it to you. I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to read three paragraphs. They're not very long, but pay careful attention. So he writes on these verses, Hatred may be moral repugnance or abhorrence, not personal vengeance. This is not the same as saying hate the sin and love the sinner. You know, that's one of the ways that we kind of frost these verses over. Oh, well, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Well, that's not what David is saying. So Piper writes, This is not the same as hate the sin and love the sinner, which is good counsel, but not all there is to say. There is a kind of hate for the sinner, viewed as morally corrupt and hostile to God, that may coexist with pity and even a desire for their salvation. Then he gives the illustration, you may hate spinach without opposing its good use. But there may come a point when wickedness is so persistent and high-handed and God-despising that the time of redemption is past and there only remain ear remittable wickedness and judgment. For example, Jesus speaks of unforgivable sin in Matthew 12, verse 32. And John says that there is sin that is unto death and adds, I do not say that one should pray for this. 1 John 5, verse 16. And Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. And I will add in there Galatians chapter 1 where he says, if anyone preaches to you another gospel, let him be accursed. Then he says, this 
imprecation is like the Psalms and assumes that there is that there comes a point of such extended, hardened, high-handed lovelessness toward God that it may be appropriate to call down anathema, which just means the curse of God, on it. So here in these verses, it's very possible if you're just thinking about what in the world did you just say in reading that article. It's very possible that the people that David is speaking about here have sinned so persistently against God, they have taken His name in vain so much, they have sinned against His people in so many ways. Yes, David may have sought their salvation, but yet they continually reject it, and so now he calls a curse down upon them. That may be what's going on here. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the next two verses, as he closes, he, he asks God to search him. You know, search me, O God, and make sure that this hatred that I have is a righteous hatred, that it aligns with the hatred of God Himself. God has hatred for sin and the sinner. Perfect hatred. Perfect hatred. He doesn't just... God doesn't love the sinner and just hate the sin. No, one day if people do not repent, He will cast the sin and the sinner into hell. Both of them. And He will pour out His almighty wrath for all eternity on them. God has perfect and complete hatred like what David is talking about here in verse 22 upon sin. But at the same time, God is able to, through Christ, say to these sinful people, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Now, I can't completely comprehend that, as you can't as well. But this is how God views sin. He completely hates it, and the sinner who does it, but at the same time, He is able to call out to them in love, mercy, and grace. And so the safest place for us to be in these verses is like I read in that article a moment ago. Somebody who has sinned so much and continually rejected sin that we finally just call out to God, O oh Lord, may Your justice be upon them. Now verses 23 and 24. So the people of God praise Him in response. The people of God desire justice in response. And lastly, the people of God continually desire to be known by Him. Now this is kind of strange because you remember at the beginning David started out, the Lord has searched me and known me completely. He knows everything about me. So now, why would he close the psalm saying, search me, O God, and know my heart? I mean, there's nothing else to search. There's nothing else to know. He knows everything. So why would he say, search me, O God, and know my heart? As he closes the psalm, David's not saying that, God, please find out new information about me that you may not already know. No, this desire that David expresses here is to be continually known by God so that David may come to know himself better. And that's why he says, try me or Test me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Oh God, continually search me, continually know me, and make known to me what I do not know about myself. That's what David is expressing here. And this is the, the, the response that the people of God as a whole have before God. We do not know ourselves completely. I mean, sometimes you say things and you don't even know why you said them. Sometimes you think things and you don't even know why you think them. But God does. He knows the very depths of your heart. And this is what David is saying. Search those depths, know those depths, and please show me so that I can bring them before you and repent and turn from them. That I can 
know you in a more intimate way, that I can continually know you and know you more. That I will be led in the way everlasting. That I would bring my sin before you continually and that you would lead me into the way of life. And so as the people of God, as Christians, we call out to the Lord in a similar way. O Lord, know us, search us, and through Christ, who paid for our sin, who bore it all, who paid it all through Him, forgive us and lead us in the way everlasting. Now, so as Christians, we are called to continually do this. But what if you have never done this at all? You know, what if you have never cried out to God to, to know you, to make your sin known to you, and to, to forgive you, to help you to repent of your sin, so that you can have this intimate relationship with God? Well, your prayer to Him looks very similar. The words just are a little different. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know God in this intimate way that David has been describing, then your prayer would look something like this. Oh God, search me and know me. Show me that I am a sinner and that I am in need of Your grace, that I am in need of Your Son, that I am in need of His death, resurrection. Death and resurrection. Show me that I am in need of these things. And then lead me in the way everlasting. So if you have never cried out to God in this way, I bid you to. Because that's the only way that you will ever, as David says, be led in the way everlasting. And people of God, may we continually cry this out. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You know us completely, all that there is to know. And that even though You, you know us in these ways, that You love us. You know our sin. You know our horrible thoughts. You know our wickedness. And yet You love us in Christ. That's why He died that's why He rose from the grave, so that we can have this very relationship with Him. Oh, may we continually desire to know Him and to know Him more. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.